welcome to New Life Preaching Podcast, where we stream our sermons from each Lord's Day. In this series, entitled The Household of God, we begin our study of the first epistle of Peter, where he seeks to encourage Christians who are scattered among pagan nations. Join us each Lord's Day so that you don't miss a single sermon. So this morning we are in 1 Peter chapter 2, just resuming our study, picking up in verses 13 through 17. That's where we'll be. And uh, all together we're learning about what it is, what it means, what it consists of, what does it look like to be a part of and participate in the household of God. And so uh, this morning, our title, uh, if you're following along in the back of the bulletin, that is the outline that I use, is simply honor all, fear God. So if you have had an opportunity to turn there in your copy of God's Word, I invite you to stand as we honor the reading of it. Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or unto governors as unto him that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. For so is the will of God that with well-doing ye may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the King. God, we thank You. God, we thank You that You have clearly revealed Yourself. You've not just given us uh, Your creation. You've not just written Your law on our hearts or made it known most especially through Your Scriptures. God, You have given us Christ and by Him You've given us Your Spirit. And Lord, You meet with us now in Your Word. We pray that we would come to know You. God, that we would feel and experience Your presence in Your Word this morning. Lord, that You would fashion us in the perfect creation following Christ's own image. Lord, that You would be glorified today in our midst right here in New Life Baptist Church. It's in the name of your Son, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. So we're studying a letter, and so we need to remember the flow of the letter. We don't just read, uh, when we get a letter, we don't just read a part and then later read another part. We want to understand it in context. And so I need for you this morning... To remember Peter's teaching that we are to glorify God, that we're to motivate others to glorify God at His coming uh, by doing what's honorable. We talked about 
living that righteous standard, living in light of Christ uh, so that they may glorify God in the day of visitation. So our, our pure testimony and honorable behavior according to His righteous standard. So that's what we discussed last week. And that's what leads into our discussion this week. The purpose of all things is to glorify God. That hasn't changed. Uh, it remains the same. It does not change nor will it ever. Uh, that's that purpose, that soli deo gloria. But it's from that pretext that we read, submit yourselves to every ordinance, every institution of man. Christians submit to authorities. Boy, isn't that a popular topic in our day. Many have taken this claim to be universal, to be legalistic or metaphorical in recent years. It's, it's got a lot of conversation. A careful consideration shows that government is not the central theme of our passage this morning. It is not. When we read, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man, every ordinance of man is not the primary topic that we're speaking of. Peter literally goes on to say whether it is the emperor supreme or it's some governor sent by him. In other words, he's saying it really doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what that institution is. It doesn't matter what that authority or what that government is. It doesn't matter. So that in any context you're in, you can learn from this passage. You can obey this passage. You can come to know who God is in this passage. So that's not the central topic of our discussion this morning. Instead, we should look to this and understand that there are perhaps three purposes for our obedience. Peter's discussing the Christian life, the household of the faith. We're getting into the meat of the gospel. You believe in Christ. You've been made to be born again, he said in his introduction. Now what does that look like? How do you apply it? Dig your toes in and just as promised, coming from this command, this imperative to glorify God in last week's message, in the, in the passage, the verse that precedes what we just read from, we see it's to glorify God. The purpose for our obedience is to glorify God. It still rings true. It's, it's a continuation. It's almost in the same breath. He says, glorify God in the visitation. Submit yourselves then to every human institution. And he says, for the Lord's sake. It's a condition. Even as we're told to submit, it's in response to our motivation that it is for the Lord or for the sake of the Lord. Now, it's not as if the Lord depends on us, uh, but it is for the purpose of His glory. 
When he says submit for the Lord's sake, he's not saying the Lord needs you, that somehow the Lord will fail if you don't submit to this authority, but he's saying you submit for this purpose of God's glory. The reason you're to act so honorable according to a standard before Gentiles in the previous passage, all of that is part of the same thing. This honorable way is in submission for the sake of God's glory. Our submission then is not on the basis of fear for your government. We could apply this to a lot of other areas. When we think of the word submission, wives, your submission to your husband is not on the basis of his personal or his supreme righteousness. Your submission to your employer is not on the basis of your need or some special status that has granted them immunity from God's moral law. Did you know that? Your submission to your employer is not simply because you need the paycheck. It shouldn't be. So in that way, we can't compartmentalize. We can't say, well, in this, in this instance, my submission is for another reason. Or in this instance, uh, they're not really accountable to God's law or, or it really has nothing to do with your religion. No, in every one of these circumstances, it is the grand motivation of your submission that Peter's talking about is to glorify God. We've already discussed the intent to cause others, even unbelievers, to glorify God in that day of visitation. We've already discussed what it looks like to do that, so we're not going to revisit all of that topic. You can maybe pull up last week's sermon if you need a refresher. But in the very next chapter, Peter will address wives whose goal is the salvation of of the husbands. So later we'll be talking about that submission, but we'll see that purpose continue throughout the entire letter. It's to glorify God. When we submit, when we uh, obey in any one of these circumstances, we must as Christians have this view of the eternal in mind. We've got to see what God's divine purpose and design is for all of creation. He is the creator after all. So there's another uh, purpose or condition. Submit yourselves to every institution of man for the Lord's sake. Uh, and he says for this is, or well he says, or unto governors as unto them that are sent by him, by God, in verse 14, for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of them that do well. So when we submit to authorities, we do so according to God's purpose for authority. If we have God in mind, He's the Creator, we want to meet His design and His purpose for His creation, 
So then we must be viewing these authorities as fulfilling a part of that purpose. He outlines the function of those who are put over us. They reward what's good and they punish the evildoer. If it's our purpose to glorify God, then it's incumbent upon us to ensure that our obedience doesn't dishonor God or abuse those in His image. Now, so this rules out the scenario where we submit in a way that causes us to go against God's Word. In our day, I don't think we have to look far to see the countless ways that authorities of all kinds are abusing their power. They're abusing God's design. They're abusing God's law, abusing God's people, uh, twisting God's gospel, and even blaspheming God's name. You can see this with our federal government. You can see this with our many employers. You can see this with any in the entertainment industry and much of media. You can see the the woke train wreaking havoc. As Christians, we have an interest in this. It's right to call these authorities, all of those authorities in each arena, it's right to call them to task. It is good to challenge law that has become unlawful, that doesn't express any revelation of God that does not express His justice or His gospel. We know this because our submission to these authorities must align with God's purpose for authority. It's not really that difficult of a concept. We love authority. As Christians, we love good authority. Anarchy is not in the Christian view. Rebellion is not in the Christian view. Now listen, that's, that may come hard against some of our ideals. And yet we maintain that every authority always falls under a higher authority. All leaders are subject to other leaders. Some deny this. Some may say that their leadership, their authority is inherent, that it answers to no one. That person is an authoritarian tyrant. All leadership answers to other authorities. Surely, the Christian knows that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to the Son by the Father and all will submit to Him. Ultimately, everyone answers to the authority that belongs to God. Which is why God can say that His purposes will never be thwarted. They all will bear judgment 
And there's only one judge. So all authority falls under a greater authority. You know that as a Christian, if you're a Christian. We do not create some idealistic utopia as Christians. We do not say that there is no authority. We do not minimize justice when discussing evil. God's given the sword to punish evildoers. He has set up leaders in every sphere of sovereignty. He set up authorities within the home. He set up authorities uh, within the workplace. He set up authorities within governments. He set up authorities within the church. And so it makes arguable the most lethal of penalties. Depending on which one of those spheres that we're talking about. We bear, as men of our homes, we bear a level of authority that supersedes that of whatever the government is. And yet, the government has been given authority that supersedes some of our own authorities depending on the nature of our action. There are spheres of those sovereignty. Perhaps we can argue the way in which these come under the authority of God this way. The shortcoming of unjust men does not warrant the absence of justice for other unjust men. Sometimes we say this person who's in authority is unjust. So there is no authority. That's foolish. God has given authority and he judges authority by the standard that he has given to that authority. Often, the reason justice seems to fall short is that the standard has been lost or rejected. We agree. When men don't rule their households well, it's because they fail to acknowledge the standard God has set for the home. When people bring indictments against pastoral leadership, is it not because they fail to acknowledge the regulation of God's Word for the church. Instead, they commercialize it according to some other standard. Same is true of the world. The reason, and I, I don't want you to think this is scatterbrained because again, we're looking at the submission to authority according to God's purpose. So this goes into every corner of life. It goes into every one of those spheres of sovereignty. It goes into every facet of God's creation. Another example, the reason the shedding of innocent blood and abortion is not curtailed, it has something to do with the refusal to require the blood of their murderers. Did you catch that? God's Word requires something of the hands of those who shed innocent blood, doesn't it? 
Whenever a people walk away from the standard, they lose the weight of the sin. That's why these pro-life movements fall flat is because so many of them are not based on the standard that God has set. There's a higher authority. When the authority that is rejected or lost, the justice is with it. The authority is corrupt. The reason fraud is practiced at such a grand scale within corporate and political America has somewhat to blame that failure to require repayment sevenfold to the perpetrator. Whenever governments and corporations, they abuse men, they don't have this view to repay their debt sevenfold to the defrauded one. There's a standard of pure justice that is given by God. It's why we appreciate good authority. When we talk about, even in our catechism, that natural law, that, that way of God that has been revealed to all men, we all can appreciate the good guys getting the bad guys. The reason for that is because it fulfills the purpose of God and it glorifies Him. Peter says, submit yourself to every institution of man for the Lord's sake. It glorifies Him and it fulfills this purpose of punishing the evildoers and praising them that do well. That's the purpose of God and authority. Thirdly, we submit to authorities to silence foolish men. For so is the will of God that with well-doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. I'm going to let you know, let each of you hear in on a, on a well-known biblical secret. Most of what you see going on around you is a flamboyant display of the ignorance of foolish men. It is a flamboyant display of the ignorance of foolish men. Whether we're talking politics, we see it in the workplace, frankly, we see it in far too many homes. How many times are arguments held and policies written and legislation proposed that produce inflamed debate even among Christians that are incredibly filled and fueled even by the foolishness or at least the incapacity to just understand God's Word? We all the time want to have these discussions of morality, of right and wrong, and of justice, and yet none of us are willing, or so few of us are willing, to go to God's Word for that answer and for that standard. God's design and God's gospel, it's utter foolishness. Listen to this. If we revisit some of those examples that, we, that I just gave a minute ago, it's utter foolishness to suggest that we repay the deed of rape 
by murdering the innocent instead of murdering the guilty. Isn't that foolishness? It's not a it's not a uh, easy thing to talk about capital punishment. These are those in the image of God, and yet there is such a weight of sin that it requires blood. It requires blood for atonement. Those sins will rest on the head of the murderer. God will hold them accountable. It's foolish. We have a generation that wants to punish the innocent instead of the guilty. It's foolishness to suggest the remedy to the theft or misuse of funds by a government is to give them more funds and more control so that they may steal less and produce greater freedom. That's stupid if I can say that from the pulpit. There's no standard of God's justice that's being consulted with. I didn't include this, but you know, frankly, look at the men who lead these homes. Why would we not hold our men accountable to the standard of God's law? The picture of a of what a heavenly father looks like. The picture of a heavenly bridegroom. We want good marriages. We want good fathers. We want sound and believing children. And yet we allow pretenders to rule our homes. It's utter foolishness that we would produce any good in society by propagating what is inherently evil. There is nothing more ignorant than the man who argues the solution to a problem is to overlook the problem, keep scrolling, change the channel, stay numb, do nothing, and be useless. We've talked about what is honorable. We've talked about God's standard, a, a way in which He's divinely revealed Himself to us. But in submitting, we do so for His glory. We do so according to His purpose. And we put to silence this foolishness. When the Christian reads God's Word and seeks to obey it, they glorify God and they silence the endless ignorance of man. We see how God purposes His creation. We seek justice for crime and reconciliation to God and the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what we do. And in so doing, we avoid the endless quarrels of even the most dedicated fools. In my personal life, I can just attest to you how refreshing it was to leave social media and realize how foolish their many debates are. God grants a quiet and peaceable life to the one who reads His Word and seeks to keep it. Who maintains the grotesque and understanding of the grotesque nature of sin and an understanding of His glorious Gospel. 
And Peter says this is, this is what it is to live the Christian life. You're a Christian, now what? Here's what you go on doing. This is what it looks like. We see God's standard reigning. It's no longer this law of sin. It's the law of Christ. It's been revealed to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's become a joy to us that we follow, that regulates our worship, and it informs our homes. So he says you do all of this. You submit, Christian, as free. As free men. The Christian exercises freedom. You're free. Pause for a second. I realize I'm preaching in America among a, a lot who have a strong duty to patriotism, and yet I would feel comfortable preaching this gospel in a socialist nation, in a communist nation, in a fascist nation. This is the word of God to the people of God. He says you submit this way because you are free. We may do all of this and live this way because we're free. The Greek doesn't make this a command. Um, it doesn't say, uh, as some of our texts render, live as free. The, the imperative isn't there. It's a, this is a passive noun. You are free as free. We do these things. We do all of this as free men. We're, we're bound in the same way. Uh, we are not bound in the same way the rest of the world is bound by their sin under the law. We're, we're, we're free. We're, we're not under this law of sin. We're no longer enslaved to the world. Nor are we dependent upon their authorities for success. We are free in Christ. When I live this honorable way and when I submit in the context under God according to His purpose, in the context of my workplace, if my workplace fails and they close the doors, God's glorified. You see that? He's the one that provides the work. He's the one that provides the increase. He's the one that provides the daily bread. If I submit to the authorities God has put over me in this hour of corruption and my government fails, God is glorified. My testimony is honest. And it's God who delivers the nation into the hands of His people. If in your home you submit according to God's purpose and for His glory, abiding by His word and standard, and you submit to the corrupt authorities that are within your home, when He deals with that, our hope is that by your submission, wives, your husband would come to a faith. Your husband would to submit to this word of God. 
yet where he doesn't, your testimony stands true and his blood is not on your hands, but on his own head. We do this because you're free. We possess what has been called Christian liberty. There's nothing that is unclean to us, yet our liberty is not without qualification. He says that your freedom, as free you do these things, but not for evil. Not using your liberty, in verse 16, for a cloak of maliciousness or a covering for evil. Our freedom is not used as a cover-up for our sin. It's a simple lesson, really. This is pretty simple. Are you free to drink alcohol? Absolutely. According to the Word, you are. Christ drank wine. Yet it would be foolish to hear the drunkard say that he is freed to his drunkenness by God. That'd be foolish, would it not? Your freedom does not grant you enslavement to sin. Does that make sense? You're not free to be a slave to the world. You've been set free, so you're no longer to be that slave. You're free from that sin. That would be using freedom as a cover-up for evil. Now, the reality of the matter is that that man who perhaps uses an argument like that and says, oh, I'm free in Christ. It doesn't matter that I sin in drunkenness. Look, Christ drank wine. As I finish my 18th uh, beer or something else, as I go into this excess and this drunkenness, the reality of that matter is that man doesn't have Christian freedom. The reality of the matter is that that man's heard some sort of Christian language or terminology to employ in his endeavor to defame God and continue in his rebellion and in his sin and in his enslavement. The reality is, is there is no Christian who's, been, who's set free in Christ who remains in that sort of slavery. God's Word weeds out the pretenders. Are you free from the dietary restrictions of the Old Covenant? Sure. Anybody like pulled pork? I mean, we had sausage in my house this morning. Yeah, we're free. But this freedom this freedom from those old covenant restrictions 
never serves your gluttony. The freedom from those restrictions that God placed in the law, it does not free you unto your addiction. It does not free you to your sloth or laziness. You see, you're free to enjoy all things Yet you are never absent of stewarding God's design and His purpose. You're His creation. And as a Christian, you're His new creation. Your Christian liberty does not make you free to sin, but free from sin. It does not make you free from God. It frees us as servants of God. Read what Peter writes. You submit this way as free, not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Did you catch that? You are as free as a servant. One of the most profound lies of our age is that of autonomy. Autonomy. Which means believing that you are only accountable to yourself. That you're free. You're, you stand alone. You're by yourself. An example we use that term, you might hear it, is Baptist churches are autonomous. That we... We do feel we exist in a larger church, but there's no hierarchy. We're separate from uh, other churches. We're not, uh, we don't have a, a pope or a diocese, things like that. That's autonomy in a political sense. But to believe in this individualism or this personal autonomy has produced an endless amount of sin. It has fragmented churches. It has grossly distorted the gospel. It has confused the freedom of which we speak. And it is a lie. You're free, but you are not separated from the people of God. You are the people of God. You are one with the many. You who were not a people are now a people. You're not autonomous. You're not accountable just to yourself. You're accountable to God. You're accountable to His Word. You're accountable to His people. You become all the more accountable. The freedom the Christian receives is like the slave who comes under a new master. You were a slave to sin. Now you're a slave to Christ. Paul calls him a slave of Christ in many of his letters. The former master was one of sin nature that afflicted your body. It destroys self and others. It destroys your relationships. And frankly, it destroys the institutions that it's a part of. The old master was oppressive. He was deceptive. Abusive. Despite how attractive he made himself appear. The old master seeks only the selfish gain of spending your soul and propagating his godlessness to steal the souls of men. 
You were a slave like every man, according to Scripture, every man was a slave of that master, and your resistance was futile. You were weakened. You yourselves were enticed by this sin, by this master of sin himself. It makes you not only ineffective, but completely helpless in freeing yourselves. You didn't want to be free. You were in high-handed rebellion. You couldn't free yourself from such a vicious ruler. So then, God sent His Son. He paid the full price of remission from your sins that evidence the ownership and the nature of the old man the requirement of Christ shows the grip and the authority and the influence that the old man the old master had over your soul so that in the one man Adam all have received trespass have died in sin He purchased you. Instead of the, f- the fleeting pleasures of the carnal soul that used to be so regularly fed to you like a dog eating its own vomit, instead we have this new master who, who he gives you the eternal bread from heaven to eat. He gives you to drink that, that spring of living water. What's more, He invites you to eat at His table. To eat at His table in the place of honor that's set apart for only Christ. You eat in the place of Christ. He's restored dignity to what is due or what, what was at least intended for the one who was made in His image. This is the new master that you come under. You serve this master so that others may even fear you, saying, behold, a servant of the Most High God. If you are so stubborn as to say repeatedly, it's not God's will, but mine. I'm not a slave of His will, but He serves my desire for salvation or life. You're either a liar regarding which household that you belong to or you're in grave danger as a Christian demeaning the one whom you were saved to serve. You are as free as a servant of the Most High God. Now we're seeing the commonality. We're called to submission and our submission in every institution is only in so far as we are in submission to God. Do you see that? This is the freedom of which Peter speaks. The servant of Christ is one who knows to whom he must pray because of their own weakness. The servant of God boasts not in his own works, but he works that he might boast in God. The ownership that God has of our souls is what assures us not only of salvation, but that He's working all things out for our good. Our servant status gives meaning to all that we do in obedience to Him. 
It helps us to endure every corrupt authority. It's because we are His servants. It gives weight to our preaching and purpose to our life. It gives us patience in suffering and authority in our rebuke. The Christian can submit patiently waiting for God to work this out and fulfill His purpose. And it gives us authority to rebuke the corrupt nature of our authorities. This servanthood drives us to honor, love, and fear. In this portion, Peter wraps this up. He says, in this poetic fashion, honor all, love the brotherhood, fear God, Honor the emperor. Honor the king. Christians demonstrate honor, love, and fear. Notice the pattern of this verse. It begins and it ends with honor. Now realize I'm going a little long. Yet the first and the last of the subjects is most ordinary and mundane. As we see this household of God, we see honor all, honor the king. That is to say, honoring the material serves the eternal. That we might honor the material relationships of our neighbor and our rulers reflects back on Peter's command to let our conversation or conduct be honest or honorable before all. Submitting to godly authority that inevitably brings glory to God serves His eternal purpose everything on this earth has its yes in Christ. All that we do all that we see is to be put in service of the eternal kingdom into which we have been called. God's purpose is to reveal Himself in creation, but most perfectly in Christ. Every bit of creation, every bit of history, every single institution that we're talking about submitting to is meeting the end of revealing God to His creation whether as vessels for honor or vessels for dishonor, they are meeting that end. They will serve God's eternal purpose. Honoring the material serves the eternal. You, you must get that. Everything material serves eternal. But then we're told to love the brotherhood. He goes beyond honoring and he goes beyond the material. He speaks of the brotherhood, our affection is with our inclusion. That love, we are called to love that of which we also are a part. We are included in the brotherhood. We have had this discussion regarding the food that we've distributed. We had the canned goods and things like that. Now listen, we, we share. We share with those who are in need, but, but there is a greater... Uh, responsibility to the brotherhood. Listen, we must feed our own. So you get first dibs. We feed the hungry, but there's no biblical obligation to feed the unbeliever while our heavenly brother or sister in Christ starves over here. 
In the day that one should starve, it should no, by no means be a Christian as long as we have provision. You understand that? You feed the Christian first. That's biblical. There's just no two ways about it. Our, our greater affections are for the church. Is it not true that you love your wife more than the stranger or the strange woman? Do you love your wife more than the stranger? It better be true. Is it not true that you love your children more than the stranger or even their children? Of course it is. You should. While I seek the welfare of all people, I will get downright violent for the protection of my own household. Surely some of you men can relate. While I share my provisions with others, I would rather starve than to see one of my own household starve. Do you see where I'm going with this? We should hope that God would treat His people with special regard or that the heavenly bridegroom would treat His own bride with special regard. It's why everything material serves the eternal. It's why you have a wife. It's why you have an earthly father. It's why we have an earthly household. It serves our understanding of the eternal. The love among the brotherhood is special and set apart as the people themselves are special and set apart. That is why all of the exhortations to love one another and to care for one another in the sermon in on the mount preached by Christ are fulfilled in the local body of the church. You have one another so that you can love and touch and serve one another. The church means gathering. It's why online, well, it doesn't count. It's not a gathering. It's not the church. So we, we don't seek to borrow Christian language for your pretending. Honor all, but love the brotherhood. Finally, we fear God and we keep His purpose. It should be obvious, greatest, Peter's greatest care and concern are for the high reverence due our Lord and Savior in God through Jesus Christ. It is such a fear that drives our submission to every authority with a trust. Not in them, but in God. It's because we fear God, not because we fear that institution. The fear is a holy fear. It both inspires a trepidation for sin and also a reverence for God and thankfulness of His grace through Jesus Christ. Listen, it's not one or the other. It's not one or the other. We don't say, well, we don't, we don't fear Him like He's scary. We fear Him because we love what He's done in Christ. Yes, you do. You should fear God's wrath. It was revealed from on high against all sin. But you should also fear Him in such reverence for what He has done in the grace that He's issued to us through the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is yes, yes to both. That is the fear that He talks about. Listen, it's not trivial. Tell me something else that you fear that you do in some trivial respect. It's just, it doesn't exist. 
Fear alters your thinking. Fear can both seize your ability to act to the contrary, and yet it can quickly motivate you to act in accordance with its command. And you fear, it doesn't matter if you fear uh, weather, it's going to stop you from doing some things and it's going to force you to do other things. It motivates you, it seizes you from action and it motivates you to other and different, perhaps opposite action. The refusal to fear God is only driven by that same rebellious spirit described by the word autonomy that we used earlier. Fear God. Listen, when, we, when Peter says this, I mean, you should, this should so drive your thinking that you should understand him to say, fear God, honor all, fear God, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor, fear God. He doesn't make any of the above a basis for fearing God. Quite the opposite, it is the fear of the Lord that is and becomes the basis of all of the others. <clears throat> it's the climax, if you will. Fearing God enables and emboldens us to obey all that we've studied here. And so Christian, and I say that pointedly, Christian, if you're not a Christian, you could have easily heard something else. You could have heard legalism. You could have heard something different than what Peter has preached here to the one who has been caused to be born again, the one who truly trusts in the blood and the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and the resurrection that has drawn you to new life. Honor all. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. Father, we come to you as a born-again people of your own possession. Lord, direct our steps in the way of obedience, not that we might achieve some salvation of our own, but God, that we might walk in the newness of life that has been provided in Christ Jesus, knowing that we have a sovereign God who has set all things to work, who is actively and intricately involved with his creation. Father, you are this God that we worship. You are the God who has not left us enslaved to the world, enslaved to our flesh, enslaved to the sin under the direction of Satan himself, but have captured us to yourself, who's paid our ransom in full, and yet, God, we ask that you guide us by this same blood, by this same testimony, by this same spirit of the resurrection of Christ, that we might live unto you and serve you with the utmost of our being. And so we pray that our utmost would be for your highest. Lord, all of this is most perfectly seen provided for, described, and worked out in Christ, whose name we pray, amen.
Thank you for listening to New Life Preaching Podcast. Subscribe so you don't miss a single sermon. We invite you to our Lord's Day gathering at New Life Baptist Church Hallsville where we meet and worship 10.30 a.m. each Lord's Day.